Well, quick question for you. How many of you have ever said when something occurred that didn't feel quite right to you, hey, that's not fair? Has anybody ever said that before or had a child say that? Most of us from a young age carry around with us the idea that certain things are or are not fair. We learn early on that if you cut in front of someone in line, they might say to you, you can't do that, that's not fair. Maybe we mutter that under our breath on the Eisenhower on a Friday night when someone cuts in front of us. Certain things shouldn't happen. Uh, Several years ago, I was chaperoning uh, my daughter's first grade holiday party at school, and I was assigned the cookie icing decorating station because I got there, I was the last parent to get there. So, <laughs> note, take a note on that. So it was red icing, piles of sprinkles, and the kids would move around the room in stations, and the cookie station was one of the stations, and so it was the last batch of kids to come through. Everybody was waiting eagerly their turn for the cookie station because that's where you got to eat something. And so the last group of kids came to the cookie station, and we had what was maybe a third of a canister of icing left and a bunch of sprinkles, exactly the right amount of icing for these kids, and I put their little sugar cookie on each of their plates, and I began to instruct them in how to put the icing on. And as I was talking, this one kid grabs the canister, scoops everything that's left out, and goes, flap, and just puts it on his cookie. This, this kid's actually a, a, the son of one of my friends. And everybody was like, oh. And one kid goes, that's not fair. He took all the icing. And as I was getting ready to instruct him to scoop it off and put it back in the canister, he took his cookie, and he looked at me, and he went, he just licked the whole thing. And everybody was like, oh. <laughs> And the kids are like, Mrs. Bianchi, that's not fair. He took all the icing. And he's like, just like this. He had icing on his forehead, on his chin. And everybody wanted to know, what are you going to do about this, Mrs. Bianchi? And we were out of icing, so I, I told them all, I said, lick your cookie and then shake the icing, the, the, the um, the sprinkles on it, they'll stick. You can't do that. You can't take all the icing. So what happens after a moment like that? That's really what we're going to have a conversation about today. What happens after something has been deemed unfair? Who responds? Who decides that indeed an injustice has been done? Does the parent chaperone the icing or uh, discipline the icing hoarder? Will the kid get away with it? How about in big life, beyond first grade? What happens when an entire group of people cuts in front of another group of people in line? What happens when someone takes more than their fair share of our global resources, what happens if you were the one at the end of the line and when it's your turn, everything's gone? Who rights those wrongs? What happens if someone injures you and no one's there to make it right? And then what happens when someone says, hey, that's not fair, and everyone kind of looks down at their shoes and mumbles, what red icing? I didn't, I didn't see any red icing. 
Today we're going to tackle the super simple biblical concept of justice. This is not a novel idea. This is not a conversation unfamiliar to many of us. We've heard this word in church before, and the word justice and the act of righting the wrongs in the world shows up in the Christmas narrative over and over and over again. And the words that we read from scripture this morning are the prophecy of Jesus from Isaiah. And one of the parts of that passage talk about how this coming savior, this king when he comes, will bring about justice. We might say ourselves that justice feels impossible in the world of injustices and icing thieves and all of the atrocities around us, we might say the roots of injustice are so deep and so extensive that this global comprehensive peace and justice, that's never gonna happen this side of heaven. We might chip away at it personally, but you know, overall, that's impossible. And then we're reminded of the scripture that tells us in Matthew 19, that with God, all things are possible. With God, all things that he promised and all things that he seeks are possible. And we have a role to play in bringing forth that impossibility. So Isaiah 11, this Old Testament prophet who speaks to the coming of Jesus, who speaks into today's Advent season. It begins with this verse, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Well, what is the stump of Jesse? And why do I care about who this Jesse is? What, what about this branch? What about this shoot? These are the sorts of phrases in the Old Testament that we're like, hmm, I'm not sure I get that. And we keep on going. Well, this is what it means. The stump of Jesse is an indication that the Israelites, God's people, their country has been decimated. And they are likened to a field of felled trees. Their empire has crumbled. Their communities are in chaos. They have no leadership. They've been leveled by the Assyrian army. And they're desperate for some relief from the bleak landscape that they have. Jesse is the lesser known father of the famous King David. And this Jesse is an indication that the kingly line of David has been felled to a stump, but except for a shoot deep in the earth, and some of you know this if you've ever had a felled tree, you can still get a shoot that comes up, another branch comes up, another tree will one day grow. And we're told that this branch is Jesus. This branch will be a new king, a king unlike any earthly ruler that ever has been or ever will be. This branch is Jesus. Jesus himself later in Revelation 22 says, I am the root, the offspring of David. 
And in Luke 4, when Jesus is in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he's standing up ready to read scripture, he reads this prophecy that we read today. He reads part of it. This is in Luke 4. And then he says to everyone, he says, this prophecy has been fulfilled in me. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So the Messiah, this shoot, this future king, is Jesus. And Isaiah then goes on to tell us about this king, this Messiah that is anointed by God and full of God's presence. And we're told that the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Precisely because, because the spirit of God rests upon him, this king, when he comes, will rule in a dramatically different way than the leaders throughout history who have been lulled to sleep by their comforts or lured by power. This king will not be about maintaining those comforts and that power. This king will be anointed by the Spirit of God and will be able to rule and see the world in a way that no human being can see. And he, we are told, will not judge then by what he sees with his eyes and he will not decide by what he hears with his ears. With justice, or but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. He will not make decisions based on rumblings or rumors or fake news or whatever he hears out there. He will make decisions because of his right relationship with the Lord. And he will not make decisions by just what he sees and what it appears. He will know there is a deeper story. And he will then rule with justice on behalf of those in need. He will rule with justice. God, this king, will make the impossible possible. He will make justice possible. Well, what is justice? When we say this word, we, it floats around in our culture. We talk about social justice. We talk about just acts. We talk about judgments. Well, first, justice is a command that we're given to do justice. This, um, this sort of haunts me when I stop to think about it because it forces me to think, have I done anything today that brings about justice in the world. It is a command. Justice is never presented in scripture as one among many options of things that you can do. Consider it if you have time. It's not what scripture says. Justice is a command and we are told that just acts and people who act justly are God's people. A way that we know we have run into one of God's people is if we see them practicing justice. 
Why? Because justice is rooted in the very nature of God. Over and over and over again in scripture, God is described as just. We are told that God brings forth justice, that God rules and brings the wicked to perish and brings change based on just acts. Justice has both individual and corporate elements to it. We can, as an individual, do an act of justice, and we can, as communities, as congregations, as corporate gathered people, we can, as society, bring about justice in the form of just systems and just cultural practices. If any of you remember, perhaps, some of your history classes, you might remember that there's that famous Roman statue, Lady Justice. She's blindfolded because justice is impartial, because you should not pick your favorites when administering justice. And she has scales to weigh both sides of issues, and she has a sword that indicates swift and decisive action. Justice can be proactive. We can set about creating just cultures where distribution of opportunity is fair, and that is a proactive way of bringing justice. We can act first, or we can have reactive or restorative justice when something bad has happened, when somebody cuts in front of the line or takes all of the icing, then we respond. The Hebrew word for justice, mishpat, is used in the Old Testament almost 200 times. It carries meanings of equality, of treating people the same regardless of race, age, gender, or status. And Tim Keller writes this. He says, over and over again, mishpat describes taking up the care and the cause of widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. In pre-modern agrarian societies, these four groups had no social power. They lived at substance level and were only days from starvation if there was any famine, if there was an invasion, or even a minor social unrest. He says, today, biblically, this quartet would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, and many others. He says, in scripture, the mishpat, the health, the justness of a community, God would determine that justness by the way that community treated this list of people. And this is what the new king will come to make right, says Isaiah. And then Isaiah says, that as this king makes these things right, this king will wear righteousness as his belt and faithfulness as the sash around his waist. And this imagery is clothing that would have indicated a readiness for conflict. The sash would have indicated a readiness for engagement, that this king, filled with the spirit of God, will rule in justice and will be ready with righteousness and faithfulness to bring about 
these things. This king is prepared to do battle on behalf of the small and the meek and the under-resourced and those in need. Can we pause here for just a second? Throughout human history, the kings of this earth have rarely, if ever, been about battling on behalf of the small and the unseen and the insignificant. The wars and the terror in our world have been waged over power and prestige and kingdom and status and everyone tumbles into the snare of these things. And this is a king who isn't going to just simply say nice things or nod or pay a little bit of attention to the under-resourced and those in need. This is a king who's ready to do battle on their behalf. That's amazing. And righteousness is this sash, righteousness and faithfulness. Righteousness simply refers to the way we move through our days and engage with others. It means we are people who move in this world in a way that seeks peace, understanding, that seeks the good in others, that we are those people that when you walk in a room, I don't know if you felt this about others, but there are people that when they walk in the room, I think to myself, oh, thank God they're here. They do good. It feels good to be around them. They're honest, they're trustworthy, they're righteous people. It doesn't mean they're moral authorities, it means they exist in a right way and in a right relationship with others, a way that honors God. That is what biblical righteousness is. And faithfulness, as many of us know, is, is just the fortitude to see those things through. It is the steadfast willingness, the solid belief that faithfulness and justice and righteousness, these are the right ways to live. And these words are often found together in the Old Testament. Rarely do you find justice mentioned without righteousness mentioned as well. And it's an indication that if we were actually to be righteous people and live righteously, we would not actually need punitive systems or systems that would right a wrong because we would actually already be about making things right. That the righteousness with which we live would render unnecessary acts of restorative or retributive justice. What an amazing picture is painted for us here by Isaiah. So what does this mean less than two weeks before Christmas, as we sit here in 2020. How do we do this? Most of us, in a wonderful way, we walked in this morning, we hung our warm jackets up, we maybe got a cup of coffee or tea, we hugged a friend, we've connected. These are good things. We sang an amazing worship set together and we clapped and we praised and we prayed. 
And now we've opened God's word and God says to us, you are to model this king who is coming to bring justice. And many of us, I hope, or I'm wasting my breath up here, are thinking, okay, this makes sense. And then what's gonna happen later today? I mean, maybe you came to church early today because you wanna get home in time for the Bears and the Packers today. There's a football game on. Go home, hopefully the Bears are gonna win. And then you're like, ah, maybe take a little nap on the couch. That's what I'm probably gonna do. And Monday comes and Monday tips into Tuesday and Sunday we come back again and we're like, oh yeah, that's right. We talked about that justice thing last week. Maybe we act, maybe we don't. This is a hard passage coming up, get ready. Listen to what God says when we refuse to act on the justice that we are to understand, when we refuse to act and we forget what God calls us to. And Amos, another prophet, speaks on behalf of the Lord and he says this, I hate, God says, I despise your religious festivals, your assemblies, they are a stench to me. He goes, you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. You bring your acts of worship, your tithes, your offerings. You bring your choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps, but what? Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Woe to you, people of God, myself included. Woe to us, the Lord says, if we get together and we do all the fun stuff and then we go home and we forget that one of the most remarkable indicators that you are a person of the Lord and a follower of Jesus is that you are determined to bring justice forth in this world. I don't know about you, what that looks like in your life. Every single one of us, every single day, can either act righteously and be a creator of a, of a community that honors other people, that listens to their struggles, that seeks understanding, that, that positions the icing fairly at the table. We can do that or we can act on behalf of some who have suffered because that hasn't happened for them. Leroy Barber is this wonderful activist, this African-American ministry leader from Atlanta, and he writes on racial reconciliation, and he works on behalf of those in need, and he works on behalf of the homeless and the under-resourced. And he says, to do justice is often as simple as looking around and asking yourself a very basic question. Asking yourself the question Jesus may have asked, what are practical ways to love your neighbor? Jesus says to love others as yourself. And then Barber says this, he says, in other words, do for others what you're doing or expecting for your own family. Whatever you expect regarding your own family's transportation or housing or education or assumptions, can you work in the world to make those apply to others? It can be perhaps this simple to find out what just 
acts are there waiting for you. A couple weeks ago, I went, my oldest is a sophomore in high school, and I went to my very first 10 things you need to know to prepare for the college application process, and I about passed out. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> it had gotten so complicated. I feel like when I was blessed with the gift of higher education, I woke up one morning, decided where I was going to school, I go to school, I applied, and that was it. And I left going, we have to start college visits? When? How many applications? People get tutors for ACTs and SATs? It costs how much? <laughs> In my little privileged world where we have access to higher education seminars, and we have the opportunity to even talk about these things. And I live in a world where we can talk about whether or not to get a tutor for the SAT. I was overwhelmed by how challenging it was and I was overwhelmed by the tremendous gift of it. And I went home and I spoke with my son and we talked about all of the things. And I remember in a moment of clarity, I said to him, I said, kiddo, I said, can you imagine what this process is like for people who don't have access to the resources that we do? I mean, I was blessed that the email that told us about the college process came to me in a language that I speak. That I had a laptop with which to open that email and a car on a cold night to get to the meeting. And I have some understanding of how education works because I received the gift of education. And it made me stop and wonder, what is my responsibility to not just have my own kid run the gauntlet of higher education, but to help other kids run that gauntlet? Because I sat there in the seminar and I was like, oh, I hope we go to a school with a big football team, you know, or whatever. And, I, and my kid, I hope they get a degree and a job they love and they get to start their life in an amazing way with that gift. And I thought, what are we going to do? I don't have an answer for you. I wanted, what I want to tell you is I figured it out and like I'm going to write a book about how to get access to education. But I know now that I need to pray for, about that and I need to study up and that my responsibility is not just to get my kid through that gauntlet, but to help as many kids and find a way to help other kids run that gauntlet, to receive those gifts. Those who have no access to these resources, they deserve them. These children deserve a chance. That's the way I'm gonna do justice, if I can, in the world I'm in right now. It's one small way, but what's it look like for you? And my invitation, for us, as we end this um, last few weeks here of Advent, is to wonder about that same thing for yourself. Go home this week and look around and think to yourself, I wonder who else needs this. I wonder who else needs heat and why they don't have it. I wonder who else needs a car to get to a job and they don't have a job because they can't get transportation. Who needs what you have? And can you find a way to help another person experience the same blessings and resources that you have? It's a simple question. And our ability to answer it is profound and biblical 
and it is what God commands, and we are told it is the mark of the king, that this king will come and will bring this to us, this just world. And the opportunity we have is to be a part of it. I want to do what Jesus is doing in the world. I want to be known as a person who lives like Jesus. That's the great joy we get. This incarnation, this God come down to rule in this way. I want to be part of that movement. And lastly, we're told that that movement will reorder all of creation. That when you read this little list about wolves living with lambs and calves living with lions and cows feeding bears, I mean, this is the natural order would be that these predators would consume these prey. And we're told that when this new kingdom comes, that there will be peace and that there will no longer be predators and prey. And that a child, Jesus, in the arms of a young teenage mom and dad, will lead the way. This is the prophecy of Christmas. This is the prophetic voice and the wisdom of Isaiah that instructs us in our time today. And our response is to take an inventory of our lives and to seek to do justice, just as the coming king will one day do. Amen, friends? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you gift us with the story of your word, that you gift us with opportunity to respond to your word. Thank you, Lord, that we have resources, many of us, that we sit in a warm room with twinkle lights and candles and we're comfortable, Lord. May we be people this Christmas season that seek comfort for others so that all you have gifted us with, Lord, we may in turn gift to others. May we be people of justice and mercy and joy and hope. In the mighty name of Jesus, the church together said, amen.